Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus podcast, a lot of grocery news later on to talk about, and we'll discuss Ruby Tuesday as more disappointing earnings come from them. But first, Sonic releases their first quarter fiscal 2017 results. Overall, the results are a little bit underwhelming. Earnings did come in above analyst expectations. Their earnings for the first quarter of fiscal 2017 came in at 24 cents per share. That was versus analyst expectations of 21 cents per share. But even the 21 cent per share mark would have been representative of a 13% decline year over year. And worse, for Sonic, same store sales came in a little bit lower. The headline to their earnings release was that their refranchising momentum continued in the fiscal first quarter, but it seemed like that was covering up a lot of financial stagnation underneath. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at their refranchising strategy and the results from it, it's pretty much on track with what the company has proposed in the previous quarter. So really not any new news there, although we will cover it later on in this podcast. But as far as these results are concerned, Sonic did mess on revenue, bringing in $129.6 million for the quarter. And this compared to consensus results from analysts at $130.69 million. So here we have a beat on earnings, yet a miss on revenue. And then also, if you dig a little deeper and look at same store sales or same restaurant sales, they did come in low as well as far as analysts' projections are concerned, falling 2% for the quarter. This is versus analysts' projections of 2.4%. So again, they did a little bit better on the same store sales front versus the analyst expectations, but there is a lot of opportunity here. And as you mentioned, even if they would have made the 21 cent per share mark, which is a little bit lower for the company than what they came in at on the profit side of things, they would have had a 13% decline in profit. And if you dig a little deeper, they did end up buying back some shares. They had $500 million in share buybacks, which reduced the overall share count, the shares outstanding by about 4%. Overall, year over year, they have 9% less shares outstanding. And this in particular relates to the program they initiated over a year ago as far as buybacks are concerned. You see a lot of quick service restaurants having these buybacks in place to bring back value to their shareholders. But again, if we tie this all back to their overall performance, you see that they've blamed a lot of sluggish consumer performance on a strong competitive environment in the QSR industry. They're saying that they've been up against a lot of headwinds and they've been having to promote a lot more. And we talk about a lot of promotion from Sonic via social media and television, but this is an expense they've really had to lay out. And this This is something that going forward, it's going to be a bit harder for them to try to have to bolster these same store sales. So to really bolster these same store sales, they are going to be having to look at some differentiators, things that are going to drive their sales and keep bringing traffic back into these restaurants. And this is going to be a little bit hard because some of their competitors have been actually taking on some of the same strategies that they've had in place for some time. 
When you look at differentiators for Sonic throughout the years, the first differentiator and probably the most obvious is the format. And when you look at other QSRs doing quite well at this point, or at least seeing slightly positive growth, you kind of wonder if Sonic's unique drive-in format isn't one of the reasons for their loss during the last quarter, as some areas got a colder than expected period of time during the winter. And additionally, when you look at some of the revenue driving products for Sonic, many of them are cold drinks. They tried somewhat unsuccessfully, at least in terms of margins, to roll out a line of coffees and that type of thing. But you see shakes and slushes among the most premier products for Sonic throughout the course of the year. And of course, demand for those products go down in the winter and they go down the further colder it gets throughout the United States. But as you mentioned, Leighton, a lot of other businesses are starting to pick up on some of the things that had differentiated Sonic in the past. Sonic has always been known as kind of a drink stop first and a food place later. Sonic is rolling out buy one, get one wing promotions on Monday to Thursday evenings. They started this on Monday evenings during the last fiscal year. They're also rolling out a promotion where two can eat for $9.99. This is very similar similar to a promotion that Burger King is actually hosting this year. And then you look just on the drink front, I think one of the more interesting things is they do partner with Coke at their locations. Well, you start to see Coca-Cola freestyle kiosks pop up in Wendy's, Jack in the Box, Qdoba, and a number of other QSRs, including a QSR that we talk about an awful lot on this show in Five Guys that's really expanding and growing out. So no longer is Sonic the only place in many towns to get, say, a vanilla Coca-Cola or a cherry Sprite. You can now get that at most Wendy's and Five Guys locations. So they're starting to lose some of their differentiators. And this brings us to the menu offerings and limited time offers or LTOs that they've begun to roll out for this next fiscal quarter. Sonic did launch their Little Grillers campaign or their Little Grillers campaign and from a business perspective, they point out that the little grillers provide Sonic full margins. These are, to quote from their website, essentially slider versions of a grilled cheese sandwich. They're offered with a variety of proteins and that type of thing. The basic version is offered at just 79 cents. So you see a lower price point there, but at the same time, an inexpensive product for the Sonic locations to make and distribute out. However, the risk here whenever you offer something at this low of a price point is that people might be getting these as, say, meals for their kids instead of a combination meal, the likes of which Sonic already has. So there are risks here for their LTOs, but they're seeing significant growth, especially in their wing sector. Their buy one, get one wings promotion has gone over especially well. But this raises other questions now for the chain in terms of Sonic. They have all of these different promotions and LTOs, including the buy one, get one wings. They have happy hour at most locations or happier hour, as it's sometimes called, from 2 to 4 or 2 to 5. And then also at several locations during the summer months, after a certain point, sometimes 7 p.m., sometimes 8 p.m., they offer half-price shakes. So what Sonic is doing is they are really trying to concentrate traffic 
towards certain points in the week. And this is creating a throughput issue for their restaurants because you're seeing everyone flood Sonic during these times. And Leighton, one of the things that they dealt with in this earnings release, some forward-looking statements about possible mobile payment processes and things that can smooth over their throughput. Yeah, and that's something that they definitely did concentrate quite a bit on here during this earnings call. They mentioned that their menu boards, their digital menu boards are going to be implemented now at 70% of locations. And these boards, just to really simplify it for our listeners, are digital boards that show up either on your smartphone or on a tablet device. And so this really enables the customer to order before they get to these drive through locations. So a typical Sonic will have 25 drive-up locations where you can order from there. But this is really going to be helping the customer experience, or at least that is what Sonic is thinking. And this is actually going to help the throughput. So Trent, you mentioned potential problems with that as far as limited time offerings and just the logistics of a typical Sonic location. But they're hoping that by having people actually order before they get to a Sonic location, the physical location, this will end up streamlining orders and actually give a better customer experience and that the food will actually be more fresh. And so I think this will be a win-win for the company, but we talk about this kind of streamlining operations, but I think it may hamstring the company in the short term. Again, they've only rolled out in about 70% of their overall locations here domestically. And so I feel as though there's going to be somewhat of a learning curve with this. Not only this, but this is included in the integrated customer engagement program overall, which is called ICED. They use an acronym during the earnings call, but this includes the mobile payment processes that they're saying that are also tied into the mobile platform. So this, like other QSRs are utilizing, will enable the customer to pay via their smartphone rather than having to give the person tending to them at the physical location their credit card or form of payment. So I think this is going to be very easy. Obviously, you can pay at the drive-up window as well, but I think this is going to be something that is going to take some time, but it was a natural progression for Sonic. And I believe that overall, this will end up helping throughput at the locations. And this really ties into the theme of really engaging their customers through the year 2017 to quickly serve them and serve them with food that is ready made. So I think this is really tying into their overall theme and is not necessarily a differentiator because if you look at all restaurants in this space, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to serve customers in a quicker fashion and make it more easy and convenient for them to pay as well. We talk about the drive-up or drive-through format being fairly unique to Sonic as far as large national QSR chains. One of the things they did mention during this last call was location growth and redevelopment. Part of the reason I bring this up is they're beginning to see that the drive-up is no longer a unique enough differentiator to drive traffic. And you're seeing some of these new locations or redeveloped locations include indoor dining places, which is actually kind of a first for Sonic. This growth in terms of interior dining has grown in spurts over the last year or two. And as far as Sonic is concerned, anytime they relocate or rebuild a location, you see a small boost in same store sales. They anticipate 45 to 50 net new openings, that's not relocations or rebuilds, during fiscal 2017, several of them with interior dining places. And they want overall 2 to 3% restaurant unit growth longer term as they're almost completely mature, less and less white space throughout the country for Sonic to expand in. 
They report having about 75% more locations in new development phase than during the same quarter in the last fiscal year. And Leighton, as you mentioned at the beginning of this story, they are continuing their refranchising strategy where they're trying to force many of their stores into franchise situations so that they're not corporate owned anymore. And this gives the company a little bit more flexibility. Yeah, and this really did play into a large part of the earnings call. You see that they refranchised 56 drive-ins for this latest quarter, and they refranchised a total of 104 locations since this refranchising plan began a little more than a year ago. And so this indicates that they have about 42 more locations to refranchise. And to basically simplify this, they're going to be selling off these locations to franchisees that they think can better operate them and make them a little bit better as far as sales are concerned. And I think if we dissect this, if we go a little bit further, we see that the strategy to grow same-store sales long-term really plays into this theme because, again, most of these Sonic locations are already franchised out. And so this is just what Sonic is used to. And this is interesting in that they're keeping a small passive interest in these locations as well. So they'll still end up having a little bit more control than a typical QSR franchising situation would have. So they're keeping a small vested interest in these particular locations that they're selling off. And they're also keeping the real estate associated with this, which I believe is a genius idea in that you're able to really enable a future transition, make it a little bit easier if a franchisee drops out and you have to either own it as a corporate level or have it change hands to another franchisee down the road. It just helps to keep everything in in-house as far as the assets are concerned. This isn't a typical process with franchisees. A lot of them end up owning the real estate, but the idea that franchisees are able to lease to Sonic, in my opinion, is the correct route to go. And then further on, if you examine their overall store count, Trent, you mentioned that they are expanding a little bit slowly with 45 to 50 new net openings. Right now, if you look at their total count, they have over 3,500 drive-ins across 45 states. Sonic Management did say at full maturity, they do see a 2 to 3% increase annually in the number of units, which represents about 70 per year. I think if you look a little closely at this, I, I think this is going to be a little bit off from what is actually going to be feasible. You're saying that if you compare that 70 new openings per year on a mature basis and you compare that to the 45 to 50 they have now, I think it's going to be a little bit hard to have. But overall, you do see a lot of growth in the unit count for Sonic. We'll move on to our second earnings story for the Food Focus. Ruby Tuesday continues their slow downward descent with their latest earnings results. They reported their second quarter earnings for fiscal 2017 after market closed last Thursday. So you see on Friday, their stock had nosedived about 23%. This was due to after hours trading. A lot of bad signs for Ruby Tuesday. Again, they were on our list of the five worst food service operators for 2016 during our last podcast. And they stated that new product initiatives and management changes had began in November and they really haven't seen a real difference to the bottom line performance. So this again is a bad sign for Ruby Tuesday if you're looking at the company at an operational point of view. 
Total revenue declined 17.7% year over year to $214.7 million. The revenue decline took place in part due to their closings of 95 restaurants here in the last six months. However, they have closed 109 locations if you compare to the same quarter in 2016. So that's 109 less locations. You're going to be expecting a little less revenue. However, if you do look at same restaurant sales, they declined 4.1%. So if you contrast this with the fact that they were closing their most underperforming locations in 2016, you can see that their better locations still are not performing to the degree that the company would expect. So they are up against a 0.8% increase during the fiscal year 2016 for the same quarter. So same restaurant sales are continuing to slide for the company, and they are also incurring some impairment charges from these latest closures. So not a lot of good news here for Ruby Tuesday. And I think it's still too early to determine how much their fresh start initiatives will play into a possible turnaround because we only really got about a half month to three quarters of a month of data from their fresh start menu and their new menu that they've put out. And that coming from the latter portion of November is this latest quarter closed November 29th of 2016. But still, this does not look good for Ruby Tuesday. As we mentioned with Sonic, Sonic came out at the beginning of their release and really underscored their refranchising efforts. The subheadline for this Ruby Tuesday release from their corporate headquarters said provides strategic updates on the Fresh Start initiatives as they attempted to somewhat gloss over some of the tougher losses for Ruby Tuesday. You mentioned same store sales or same restaurant sales declining 4.1% against a 0.8% increase during the prior fiscal year. That was one of the last times we saw a same restaurant sales increase for Ruby Tuesday. And this came in despite during the middle of this quarter closing what we're led to believe are their 95 lowest performing locations. So that leaves the question, how bad might their same restaurant sales have declined had they not closed those 95 lowest performing locations? Now, there is an argument to be made that states that basically they maybe didn't close their 95 worst performing locations, but some of those locations performed a little bit better. However, they saw potential in the real estate for those locations, which we'll get to in a second. But sometimes same restaurant sales falls because of a decline in traffic. Sometimes it falls because of a decline in guest check if you have a lot of promotional initiatives and that type of thing. However, for Ruby Tuesday, it declined because of both reasons. Guest counts fell by 2.8% and the net check declined by 1.3%. And this is in an atmosphere where there's a lot of promotions around the casual dining industry. And that's something that they mentioned. They talked about how the casual dining industry has remained challenged across the board. But as Leighton and I have noted on previous Food Focus podcasts, you're really just seeing an increase in competition. You're seeing an increase in market share taken from the casual dining industry into the QSR industry and the semi-casual food industries. So it's really not about hard times for this area as much as it is about competition. And one thing that Ruby Tuesday hopes will help them stand out against the competition is their fresh new menu. That is a proper noun as far as Ruby Tuesday is concerned. They've mentioned that they've added a bunch of new dishes that are, in theory, supposed to appear fresher to the customer, supposed to appear more healthy to the customer, and they've rolled out a new garden bar 
as well. One of the differentiators in the past for Ruby Tuesday has been their salad bar, and they're sprucing it up a little bit, but again, did not see bottom or top line results from their re-release of these two things, at least as far as November was concerned. However, the leadership at Ruby Tuesday did point to a couple of customer surveys. There was one survey conducted by Market Force back in October, and this keep in mind was before Ruby Tuesday rolled out their new menu and their new garden bar, but Ruby Tuesday ranked highest among chains in the healthy choices category among its 9,200 respondents in the survey. And then also management said that they reached their best ever overall satisfaction score at the individual restaurants as far as customer service is concerned. However, some of that came at the cost of their margins, which are slowly eroding, and that built into a lot of the negativity surrounding the firm's financials. However, they did, Leighton, mention some positivity as far as some real estate transactions and the ability to unlock their value. Ruby Tuesday is looking to sell off about 25 properties and they expect about $1.6 million per location. And I think this is a company that definitely needs a capital infusion. You're talking about having to roll out some promotional campaigns for all of these healthy start initiatives and these fresh new menus. So I think this is going to be well needed for the company as they currently only have $38.6 million in cash and cash equivalents. And they have a debt of $223.2 million. But if you look a little closer at the numbers, something I really wanted to scrutinize here is the fact that their restaurant level margins have actually come down 410 basis points down to 11.5%. So if you're looking at a company from the operational standpoint, this is not something that's going to be very good for the company. This is an appreciable difference in the total restaurant margin. And you're looking at a number of reasons for this. The company's management said that they've had menu inefficiencies. And then also the cost of goods are increasing because of labor costs. They're saying that wage inflation during this last quarter had actually increased 4.6%, which is actually more than a lot of other competitors in the full-service restaurant space. So either their staffing levels are a little bit higher or they've given out wages that are a little bit higher than the market would otherwise require. But you're looking at some national TV and social media ad campaigns, which really indicates a higher spending level. You're saying that marketing expense for this last quarter was $14 million for Ruby Tuesday, which was actually slightly higher compared to the $13.7 million for the prior year's second quarter. And so if you look at these numbers, you're seeing that there's an increase in marketing expense, even though they have 109 less restaurants. So you really have to question whether or not the company is effectively marketing. We talk time and time again about proper social media utilization, and it does not seem as though anything they're doing is really bringing those customers back in. And Trent, this really ties into the fact that you're seeing those guest counts fall. You mentioned 2.8% less store traffic to these Ruby Tuesday locations. And I think they need some better, more effective marketing if they really want to see a positive performance from the fresh new menu, the fresh new garden bar, and the fresh experience overall. They've mentioned in the past that these new strategies were developed in part to increase Ruby Tuesday's appeal towards their target demographic of women and families. And so it would pay for them to be able to reach out and market 
towards them. Their interim president and CEO, Lane Cardwell, was quoted as saying that while the results of their fiscal second quarter were disappointing, he was excited about the strategic changes. And it would be surprising, certainly, to say that he wasn't excited about the upcoming strategic changes. However, when you look at things like the balance sheet for Ruby Tuesday, it begins to look a little bit more grim. And you have to wonder if maybe a turnaround in the next quarter or two doesn't happen how far Ruby Tuesday can go into the negative before you start seeing more drastic measures as far as a possible recovery. Again, Leighton, you mentioned that their stock is at basically a 52-week low. Coming into recording the podcast, their stock is about $2.50. And when we've discussed Ruby Tuesday before, we've talked about their inability to kind of hone in on what they want to do as a restaurant. And I think this is getting a little bit better as far as their refocusing. They wanted in their last Investor Day presentation to be both a fine casual restaurant and a fresh casual restaurant that appealed to those wanting to eat healthy. And it seems as though now the healthy option part of this wins out. And if they can position themselves in the marketplace as a casual dining restaurant that offers the most healthy dining options of any restaurant that's out there, I think they're in very good shape. But it's going to take some transparency for them, and it's going to have to take underscoring in their marketing about the relative health of some of their products. And right now, when you visit their website, and this is probably the biggest problem I have with their new menu, when you visit the Ruby Tuesday website, literally the first thing that comes up is a dessert item that is one of the most calorically dense dessert items on their menu. It's not necessarily pictures of fresh and new. The third picture that comes up in the flash picture rotator on their website is a plate full of fried food. So again, we're only hitting one out of three when we talk about healthy initiatives, when we talk about fresh new initiatives. So they have to figure out some way to be able to market their products as fresh as new. And one of the things that we talk about, it seems like every week on the Food Focus podcast, is another business rolling out something that is gluten-free. And Ruby Tuesday has talked about putting in gluten-free pasta as an option on their menu. But once again, until you get that training portion of it on the back end in their kitchen, we don't know how effective this is really going to be. And As of right now with Ruby Tuesday, they do have a significant number of barriers to appealing towards those that are trying to eat gluten-free or appealing to those that are trying to eat without certain allergens. For example, they still do not have a separate fryer for french fries. So anyone ordering a gluten-free burger basket doesn't really get a burger basket. They get instead just a burger with the toppings on it and that's it. They have no bun to substitute there. They have no french fries that they can put in the basket. So really you're just ordering a half pound pile of meat and that's it if you are a gluten-free consumer. So You can't have it both ways if you're Ruby Tuesday and both try to appeal to those that are eating a healthier lifestyle or maybe those with celiac disease that have a a gluten sensitivity or a gluten allergy and then offer supposed choices on their menu without the ability to 
make adequate substitutions and adequate accommodations for those products on their menu. So until they go all in a little bit on the healthy eating and that type of thing at Ruby Tuesday, I'm not sure how well this strategy is going to play out because they still do market a lot of food, even on their website with pictures and that type of thing that isn't necessarily their healthier food. So if you're trying to market yourself as the healthy restaurant, you've got some changes to make. Yeah, and my last thought on Ruby Tuesday here is really the idea that they still have 613 restaurants and they haven't closed them all, right? So they have 546 that are company owned. And if they really did want to pivot to a more healthy eating environment at a value price point, they still have enough time to do so. They're not hemorrhaging too much cash and they still have a decent time horizon if they wanted to turn the company around. But as you said, the level of inventiveness for the company really isn't that high right now. And they are still a, little, a bit mixed as far as their overarching strategy and getting the healthy concepts mixed in with their conventional American cuisine. So a lot to look forward to in the next year for Ruby Tuesday, and we will be keeping a close eye on the restaurant operator. Well, we move on to grocery news for two of our last few stories. We've got three stories left here, and we'll start with the positive news. The good news is Pyramid Foods, which is a grocery operator based out of Rogersville, Missouri, has announced both an acquisition and a new concept that they are developing in Springfield, Missouri. Part of the reason this is pertinent is because Pyramid Foods has really blossomed over the last 10 years. They've expanded from around 20 stores a decade ago to right at about 50 now after the acquisitions. The stores they're acquiring are three Country Mart stores. Country Mart is a grocery brand that has several local owner operators as well as ownership from other conglomerates, Pyramid being one of them, and Pyramid had already held country marts in certain other markets. This acquisition of the three country marts, actually all located in Kansas, follows the September acquisition of one in Clinton, Missouri. The last acquisition is interesting because they extended some of their larger grocery concepts into this Clinton location, including their Starbucks kiosks that they include in a number of their stores. This is the first Starbucks in Clinton, Missouri, and if they do this in the Kansas markets, as I looked up some of these Kansas markets, they would be introducing the first Starbucks in these particular markets as well. Primarily, Pyramid Foods has grown through acquisition, and they're an interesting story because they own about 50 grocery stores, Layton, but they have about 12 different brands that they shuffle in and out with these 50 stores. Yeah, it is a fascinating story, and you were talking before the podcast about how an operator of 52 stores can have a total of about 12 different names. So they have not only the Country Mart, which you've already mentioned, but they have Price Cutter, Food Pyramid, Bistro Market, Save-A-Lot, Bistro Catering, Summer Fresh, and the list goes on and on. So this really is an operator that is buying and growing through acquisition. And you see this really work out for a number of grocery operators here in the Midwest. They see that there is some sort of brand awareness and some brand devotion. They are getting a lot of customers in these stores, and they really don't want to lose them. And so they decided to keep 
these certain banners after they acquire these stores instead of changing and creating their own private label brands from within the store. So I think this is going to not only save on the cost down the line because it costs a lot of money to rebrand an entire location. There's a lot that goes into that. But overall, it's a good strategy if you want to keep your customers coming in. And I think they're seeing these stores that are profitable and trying to acquire these longstanding locations. It is a privately held company, so we can't look too deep into their financials. We transition to a new market concept that they're creating called Ruby's Market Trent, which you had alluded to. It's going to be in Springfield, Missouri. It's going to be really trying to reinvent the grocery store. They're going to have a chop shop in-house that will allow customers to actually have their produce cut to their own specifications. They'll also have a brick oven pizza. So this is a lot of innovation coming by way of a private grocer that really has seen a lot of growth here in the last couple of years. Exactly. You look at some of the interesting innovations now. I will mention that the price cutter brands under Food Pyramid, as well as Food Pyramid, and some of their other locations, such as Summer Fresh Supermarkets, also include some of these aspects that they're innovating. But there's a lot of rumors surrounding this one empty location purchased from Kroger back in 2014. And some of the innovations that they'll have in store will include what they call a chop shop. It's going to allow customers to come in and have their produce that they purchase cut to their specifications. So it's a handy tool for a consumer and that they get their produce cut on location. Brick oven pizza, which is something that they have in a few of their other locations, at least it appears at this point. They have a bakery that they're installing, and what they're doing inside the bakery is they're actually creating a house-made single-origin fair trade chocolate and a line of chocolate that will include chocolates with fillings and the like. They're including twice their typical space for craft and local beers, and above and beyond this, they're including a bar similar to what you might see in many Whole Foods locations, and the bar will have beer, wine, and kombucha on tap, as well as a juice bar. The juice bar will be run, they note in their press release, by a former Missouri State football player, Missouri State, located in Springfield, Missouri. So basically what they are trying to do with this is they're taking the traditional grocerant that we hear so much about. It's a format that Hy-Vee in Iowa has tinkered around with. It's a format that Kroger in various stores and locations has tinkered around with. And of course, Whole Foods is perhaps the most popular current grocerant concept. And they're trying to advance this further. They're assisted in this by the relative lax liquor laws in Missouri. And as I was looking at this story and kind of looking at some of the headwinds that they might be up against, Missouri has some of the most lax liquor laws in the country, much looser in Missouri than they are in Kansas and Oklahoma, where some of their other holdings are at Pyramid Foods. So it's probably unlikely that you'll see this concept catch on in some of their other markets, but at least in Missouri, this looks like a very strong concept. And they make a big deal out of being employee-owned overall, this pyramid. They're very similar in that fashion to Harps, which is another somewhat competing grocery chain. We mentioned Harps last year for purchasing a number of Walmart Express locations that were vacated, as well as a few of the Walmart neighborhood market locations that were vacated when Walmart exited some of those stores back in January of 2016. And obviously Publix is another much larger employee-owned retailer that specializes in locations in Florida and around the American Southeast. But overall, you like where they're going with this innovation, the fact that they are 
a smaller grocery chain, trying to upgrade the traditional grocerant and selling kombucha on tap. This is something that's fairly unique for a standard line grocer. And keep in mind, Ruby's Market, although they will try to have a number of natural and organic foods, they're not completely in that category. So they've kind of got one foot in a couple of different concepts and that seems pretty typical for a company in pyramid foods is as you mentioned some of their brands include price cutter food pyramid ramey summer fresh cash saver and one other concept that they're beginning to build out is called king cash saver which is an off price concept very similar to save a lot and when you talk about the merchandising impacts that their new ruby's market will have in king cash saver what they've done is basically merchandise products in wooden crates it's similar to a save a lot or maybe an aldi or what we're led to believe what little will be like and this is their response basically to a save a lot store most of which are owned, of course, by Super Value. So this King Cash Saver concept, it's funny. One of the things that we mentioned before we got onto the air was the King Cash Saver logo. It's this maniacally smiling apple, and it's something that I'd like to run by Armin Vitt, a previous podcast guest of under consideration to talk a little bit about how they developed that logo and, and basically the impact of the logo. But if you want to see the logo for yourself, it's at kingcashsaver.com, and you can also check out the concept they just opened a new location in butler missouri they have a total of seven locations with this concept and i think it could be a driver of growth for them in the future as well as this ruby's market you really have to take a step back and look at pyramids foods and really applaud them for their usage their innovative usage of their floor space and really taking the chance to invest in these innovative designs because as you mentioned they're not really in these locations that are that large you're talking about square footage square footage that is equivalent of a neighborhood market but with this new concept of ruby's market you're seeing a store in an operator that has really taken the chance here by having this type of format where you're utilizing a brick oven for pizza and then they're also as you mentioned having a beer and wine bar and you tie this in perfectly with the idea that whole foods has really been seeing success and they for themselves have taken a chance over the past couple of years and if you go to certain locations in certain markets you're seeing that over a dozen beers are on tap at certain whole foods locations and if you look through their investor relations calls you're saying that they've seen a lot of positive response from these types of concepts so here we have a smaller private grocer with a lot less capital than the likes of whole foods which has been around for much longer trying to take advantage of these new innovative ways and it's important to note that there's actually no Whole Foods in Springfield, Missouri, despite the fact that the metro area runs about 200 to 300,000 people overall. So they'll be really the first full-on grocery store entrant into this market as far as a natural foods operator is concerned. And again, you mentioned private operator. Typically, we talk about slow growth, but right now it appears as though Pyramid Foods is really growing by leaps and bounds. Getting back to the three country mart stores that they purchased. It looks at this point like those stores will not be rebranded but simply folded in as Country Marts and right now ownership is mum on how much of their other store features. We mentioned the Starbucks store and store concept. We mentioned floral departments and that type of thing being in some of their other stores that they will put into these Country Mart locations that they acquired this month. We'll keep on with a brief theme of talking about smaller grocery store operators here domestically. 
Giant Eagle just announced some grocery store closures, mostly taking place in Ohio. A little bit of background about Giant Eagle. They were founded in 1931, and they are privately owned, similar to that of Pyramid Foods. And they are family operated. So they have annual sales currently of around $9.5 billion. And Giant Eagle is actually ranked 27th on Forbes' list of top private companies. So a very good operator, again, in the Midwest, similar to Pyramid Foods. But you're seeing here that they're actually closing stores. And this was due to competitive pressure. Management cited a lot of competitive pressure in regions where they had not previously seen it. They said they're seeing a lot of competition move into some of the spaces that they are currently running stores. And so they declared this late last Wednesday that they're closing five supermarkets in Ohio, two near Cleveland, and three in the Columbus market. So before the announcement, they had 218 locations. So you'll see about 213 locations. And this includes the get-go convenience store concepts that Giant Eagle also operates. But this comes at a time when you and I are keeping along with the theme of price deflation or food stagnation if you will. And so a lot of these grocers really can't compete with the economies of scale for the larger operators like Walmart or Kroger. So you see this heightened competition in the surrounding areas really as the major point here that should be touched on as far as the reason why they're closing. But Giant Eagle said last week that the get-go convenience store locations and two Giant Eagle stores would also be closing in Pennsylvania. So this was actually declared after the announcement of the Ohio closing. So not a lot of good news for a grocery operator that typically is seeing some higher than normal price points. As you mentioned, Giant Eagle has locations largely surrounding the Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia area, although they do go as far west as Indiana and as far east as Maryland. And they do have annual sales of $9.3 billion, so not quite as small as the likes of Pyramid Foods that we were just talking about. We'll be quick with this story because outside of a few warning signs put up by Giant Eagle, not a whole lot of financial information to talk about because they are very tight-lipped on their financials. But in many Giant Eagle stores, they have curbside pickup programs and a number of private label goods as well. Giant Eagles also have fairly large membership programs like the likes of Kroger. But you talk about a curbside pickup program they call this curbside express when you look at programs like this and also app-based ordering of foods and the likes of which becoming the norm in the grocery industry it becomes a lot more difficult to make these things work in locations where you've already got slim margins as a whole these locations in ohio were fairly new giant eagle locations as it were they're not locations that have been around for 40 or 50 years they've been around for the most part since the 90s or the early portion of the last decade so giant eagle isn't closing these heritage stores these flagship stores if you will but rather these are seen more as failed entrances into certain markets. And when you look at markets like Cleveland and Columbus, you've got a lot of pressure from some of the larger food retailers in the area like Meyer Stores, which is actually among Giant Eagle on the list of top private companies in the United States. And of course, we talk about Ohio essentially being Kroger's backyard. Kroger's got a big corporate influence in the Cincinnati region. And then you're seeing competition as well from off-price food retailers. We've talked about Aldi in the past, but Save-A-Lot Foods also has a fairly large footprint in that area as well so just too much competition here for giant eagle to be able to stand out amongst the crowd and so they decided to exit 
those markets and focus more on their existing markets. And that's something that they're doing, adjusting in the Erie, Pennsylvania markets as well. Because they're opening a new Giant Eagle in Erie this spring, and this store has larger square footage, and they make better use of said square footage, they found it pertinent to close their existing get-go and Giant Eagle stores there already. Yeah, and it's not all bad news for Giant Eagle. You can tell that they really took their time in deciding what locations to close. And as you had mentioned, these weren't really longstanding locations for the company. These locations are primarily locations that have only been open for about 8 to 12 years or at least been operated by the company as a whole for about that long. And then if you look at the company and... All of the initiatives that they've recently spearheaded, you mentioned online ordering with the Curbside Express. I think this is really good for the company as they've really branched out because they've seen the competition come in from the larger grocers. So they've really been enhancing their online ordering platform. You can even order certain cakes online. And then also they have a large amount of pharmacies inside that they operate many of their locations with. So I think there's a lot of positive signs for the company. And you can definitely tell through the press release that the management cares for their employees and their customer bases. And they implore the customers affected by these closings to go ahead and visit the remaining locations in these certain regions. Well, we close out Food Focus as far as the news is concerned on Food Focus today with a new product release. We like to look towards new product releases in certain areas. And this week it comes via Burt's Bees as they release a line of protein shakes. That's correct. Burt's Bees is most well known perhaps for their line of lip balms and HBA products. They were founded in 1984 and now wholly owned by their parent company, Clorox. These protein shakes are 70% organic. All of these protein shakes will be made utilizing plant-based protein. So they stay away from dairy and animal-based protein in these protein shakes and are trying to use that as a differentiator. And Leighton, I know you're a constant customer in this particular market. What are some other things that Burt's Bees seems to be looking towards as differentiators on this line of protein shakes? Yeah, that is right. I do buy a lot of protein shakes and protein powders, but this formula is going to be a little bit different in that it provides 15 grams of protein. It's coming from proteins that are extracted from peas, rice, flaxseed, and sunflower seeds, and oat. So this is a little different formulation than other competing companies. But this is an interesting foray into a space that Burt's Bees is not so familiar with. And I think this is due in part by their parent company, Clorox, really seeing the power of the Burt's Bees brand and really wanting to extend this through things that people can eat. But I think this is going to be a little hard to digest for a common consumer who is familiar with the brand. Again, they have over 200 common products that range from their popularized chapstick to even makeup products. So this is a company that really has been a staple personal care company. Again, a natural personal care company that really has not familiarized themselves too much with these products. But you can see that they definitely want a piece of the market share. And that overall, if you're looking at the U.S. industry, it's a $6.7 billion market if you're looking at the sports nutrition market. And then if you're looking at just protein powders alone, they make up 70% of that. So they're looking at an overall market for just protein powders annually in the United States. It's around $4.7 
billion. So they are probably thinking that if they can just get a piece of this market and really differentiate by having this be an all vegetable protein base, they're thinking that they will be profitable and really looking at a price point that is actually competitive with other competitors in the same space. What I like about this line that Burt's Bees has put out is that they're trying to formulate their different versions based on what existing customers of Burt's Bees are interested in and looking for. You see a daily version, a gut health version, and a healthy radiance version. And right now, this speaks volumes on their website. They're out of stock of the gut health portion of their line of protein shakes and this is something that a lot more people are paying attention to we talked about the kombucha on tap at pyramid foods concept earlier in the show of course anything that is fermented anything that contributes to gut health supposedly will fly off the shelves and they've displayed this certainly on their online website healthy radiance and their daily version everything kind of builds towards that idea of a healthier life. It is not so much that they are marketing for muscle gain or muscle mass here, but this is more marketing towards people that need extra protein in their diet that want to make sure that they are feeding or putting good things into their body. It does seem certainly like this is a transparent grab for the sports nutrition market in the U.S., but I think Burt's Bees is also seeing trends in athleisure wear that we talk about on the retail focus at leisure wear sales going up more and more people are interested in jogging you see an increased interest in wearables and i think burt's bees is wisely seeing a place for them in the marketplace outside of supplements that you might purchase at a gnc or online at amazon that are specifically for muscle mass or specifically to give you some effect towards your workout you look at just the names gut health healthy radiance and daily those seem to be marketing towards people that are more casual workout fiends that exercise that use fitbits and wearables to track their improvements on a day-to-day basis rather than those that hit the gym with the explicit notion of gaining muscle mass this really does speak volumes to their overall idea here that they're just really trying to get people to live healthier. This really isn't trying to appeal to the bodybuilding crowd, but if you can look on their website, BurtsBees.com, if you go to their shop, it is interesting because, again, the cornerstone of their business has been personal care items. We're talking about skin care, baby items, hair and body works. It's really all just been their focus until now where you see healthy nutrition is now at their forefront of their website. So if you go and click the shop button on their main menu, the healthy nutrition banner is the first thing that pops up. This actually, again, does take precedent over all of their previous categories. So this is either a push to get the healthy nutrition category to the forefront of people's minds and to really introduce people to this new category for them. But I think overall, you do see the emphasis on the ingredients. You're looking at a lot of natural ingredients here, and this really ties in to their common theme here. You're talking about lip care that is all natural. Burt's Bees lip balm is an all natural item. And so I think this is a convenient play for a company now that they've built out an adequate brand. But I mentioned price point earlier. The MSRP is $39.99 for a normal container for all of the brands, you had mentioned the daily, the gut health, the health resonance. So the only one that has a lower price point 
would be for the Healthy Radiance, and that has a price point of around $29.99. So if you're looking at the servings per container, it's 16, and they also have the conventional vanilla and chocolate favor. So while they are competing in a slightly different space because we're talking about an all-natural vegetable-based protein here, you're seeing that they are looking at the more popular flavors from other protein powder manufacturers. And there's been some industry criticism as far as the protein powder industry, the shake industry, that suggests that plant-based protein in these powders aren't complete proteins. But again, unless you're looking at this specifically to gain muscle mass or unless you spend the majority of your day in a gym, that's not something that you're going to be too concerned with. You look at some of the nutrient blends and the vegetable blends that they put in this. You see ingredients like spinach, broccoli, carrot, beet, tomato, cranberry. It pretty much runs the gamut above and beyond the protein that's there. And in addition to these tubs, they also sell most of their protein powders in packages with individual servings. So a 10-pack, for example, would be $29.99. So you get 10 individual servings. It comes out to about $3 per serving. And they also sell singles if you want to try that out. And the singles are about $3 as well. I will mention that these protein powders are available mostly on the Burt's Bees website. And I think if you're looking at one area where they need to develop, it is probably their website, which is very tough to navigate, almost impossible to navigate on a mobile device. And it's littered with pop-ups and offers to join email lists and all of that on just, just about every single page. Very tough to even find where to buy the protein powder on their website compared with other e-commerce sites. So if there's one thing that they could improve upon, it's probably that. Well, as we do with every Food Focus podcast, we finish up by talking about something that we tried that's new to the world of food. And Leighton, we'll begin with you. Yeah, so I actually have the product in front of me, and I'm going to keep along with the two-month theme of introducing items that aren't necessarily from restaurants. These are items that are bought primarily in grocery stores. And so for today, or for this week rather, for the Food Focus, I ended up getting some pretzel crisps, which are made by the manufacturer Snack Factory. And these are actually dark chocolate crunch pretzel crisps. This was a limited time run, at least at the wholesale club in which I bought them. The normal bag size is 18 ounces. So you're looking at a pretty large bag of these. And I got to say, Trent, for an all natural item, this was extremely tasty. And if you look at the ingredients, this is what surprised me the most. The number one ingredient was real dark chocolate. And so they weren't shy about the chocolate portion of these pretzel crisps. But overall, you're looking at an average serving size of about five crackers. But for those five crackers, you're looking at 130 calories, five grams of fat, and three grams of saturated fat. So that real dark chocolate really does take a toll as far as the nutrition facts are concerned. But I got to say the price point was very reasonable. These MSRP around $7. And for a whole bag, it's worth the value. I, I feel as though I ate probably about one third of the whole bag on the first sitting, which again, keeps along with the theme of these tasty snacks that I've been trying for the podcast. But really a great buy here. They do have a website. So Snack Factory has a multitude of items, not only these chocolate pretzel crisps, but they do offer a wide variety of items that are snack based. And I implore you to check them out. 
Well, a few months ago on the podcast, we talked about Jack in the Box's rollout of their brunch fist menu, which features 10 items that are designed to kind of fit in between brunch and breakfast. And we talked about some of these items appearing as though they would appear at higher end restaurants or at least sit down restaurants, fast casual restaurants, the likes of Denny's and IHOP, for example. And so I wanted to make it a point to try one of these. The town where I live doesn't have a Jack in the Box, but I recently visited one that did. And I tried out their Southwest scrambler plate and you and I had both remarked when we were talking about this on the podcast that it appeared as though these food items were certainly fancy looking fancier than you would normally expect to find at a jack-in-the-box and the southwest scrambler plate comes with eggs along with peppers roasted peppers as well as hash browns or kind of home style potatoes if you will and a few strips of bacon and pepper jack cheese on all of it and honestly i was expecting the ingredients to be a little bit more combined than what they were i found the potatoes a little bit drier on the inside wasn't overall pleased with the level of food that i got but for the price it was pretty solid the price point i believe was four dollars and 49 cents for the southwest scrambler plate so tried something a little bit interesting from their brunch fist menu they also have bacon and egg chicken sandwiches with a fried chicken patty and a brunch burger which features an egg on top of you guessed it a traditional hamburger so those things i will probably not get around to trying but i did try out the southwest scrambler plate i'm more anxious to see though above all if this new brunch fist rollout causes a little pop in same restaurant sales for Jack in the Box because we've seen similar effects with other QSRs that have introduced new breakfast items in the past. I really think this was a novel rollout by the company because I think this is something that anyone can eat at any time of the day. You and I were talking about this before the podcast and that breakfast really is eaten at all times of the day by a lot of people. So I think this is something that they looked at and said, you know what, we'll take the chance on rolling this out. And I think they've gotten a lot of positive consumer response from it. Something that's interesting before we close out on the Food Focus podcast, this just came down the pike as we were recording the podcast. Chipotle, it appears, has managed to show positive same-store sales for the month of December. Now, for the quarter ending at the end of December, they still expect a loss in terms of same-store sales. But we expected that with the E. coli outbreak not hitting until late in the year last year. So no surprise that they showed negative comps in October and November. But positive same-store sales for last month is indicative of a potential turnaround for Chipotle, the likes of which you and I kind of both forecasted as they go against more favorable comps following the outbreak. Yeah, it appears as though they've hit a one-month high due to this report. The stock's up right now around 6.3% above $25 a share, so the stock's trading around $420 a share currently. Again, riding a one-month high now based off this positive December news. And it's not a surprise to us necessarily. There are still a lot of articles out there cautioning against their turnaround, but I think you and I both agree that for the next full quarter as they're going against easier comps, you're going to see positive same-store sales in the neighborhood of the mid-single figures. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. Uh, a quick note, we will be moving the Food Focus podcast to Tuesdays and Wednesdays as the release date, and then the Retail Focus podcast will be released on Thursdays and Fridays to accommodate the newer news cycle that we've faced over the last three to four months with a lot of retail news hitting on Wednesday. Want to be sure and stay timely with that and a lot of food news hitting over the weekend as well. So that's why this is out on a Tuesday check out Retail Focus. It'll be out Thursday or Friday of this week. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode. 
been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 